Isn't it wonderful that we're in this thing together? We walk together with the Lord and one another. I want to publicly thank Bruce. Uh, don't embarrass him, but thank Bruce for last Sunday fulfilling my responsibilities of preparing communion and looking after those matters of being communion deacon. You know, most people don't realize how many hours this man spends here behind the scenes, and we appreciate what our brother does. I'd also bring you greetings from Upper Room Fellowship Church in West Lafayette, Indiana. Had a wonderful time with that congregation. Gordon and I did this past weekend. This is an interesting church. It began with a move of the Holy Spirit among the faculty at Purdue University. And uh, four or five professors that the Holy Spirit began to move in their lives began to meet for prayer in a room above a bookstore. And as they began to meet together, others joined them. Students began to join them. It grew and grew. And finally, they thought, it seems God is forming a church. Some of you have been around for many years, might remember Deverne Frumke, one of the uh, teachers in the early charismatic movement, a man who taught about the deeper life. And so Del Brorsma, who is the head of the Department of Entomology at Purdue, seemed to be the primary man who was moving this thing forward. He went to Deverne and said, I'm, all, I'm new to this Christianity. Will you disciple me? And so Deverne disciple Del Brorsma. And Del, a uh, very, very faithful man. Very first conclave we had, which was held at TCF here in 1987, Del was present. And it was a joy to reconnect with him uh, this past weekend. This church is an international church. Many students and faculty from Purdue are involved in the church. Uh, many African nations are represented in the congregation, Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese. They have an alpha course on Sunday night for Chinese led by a Korean brother, which is quite an interesting combination. I sat with one uh, Ph.D., man from China who was trying to convince me to take all of my money out of the bank and buy gold because we're getting ready to have a great economic collapse. I have no money in the bank to, with which to buy gold, but he was still pressing that on me. But a wonderful, wonderful time, and the planning committee meeting could not have gone better. It was a blessed weekend as we came together to plan the conclave for next May. I don't know about you, but so often there's a song that gets in my head that won't go away, and unconsciously I start whistling it, and in a crowd more than, well, it's so often somebody stops and says, that's beautiful, what is that song? And I have to, what is that song? I have to stop, and it happened in the airport when Gordon and I were waiting in Indianapolis, a group of musicians were there, and anyway, but... Sometimes it's a phrase. And Thursday, as I began asking, Lord, what would you say to the body Sunday morning at TCF? This phrase kept going over and over. Is there any word from the Lord? Is there any word from the Lord? Is there any word from the Lord? That's a phrase that Zedekiah uttered when he was approaching the prophet Jeremiah. Israel had tragically failed God and they had turned to idolatry and offended the Lord in many, many ways. And after God had called for repentance time and time again, 
In essence, he said, enough. And so God released the Babylonians to come against Jerusalem. He spoke to Jeremiah, tell the king and all of the nobles to go out to the Babylonian general and surrender. If they do, they will live. If not, the city will be destroyed and thousands killed. Well, the nobles thought that Jeremiah was a traitor, (laughs) and so they put him in jail. King Zedekiah, very anxious about what was going to happen, came to Jeremiah's Uh, speared him out of prison into the palace, and there he secretly said, Is there any word from the Lord? Now, as I sought God, and that question was with me, I was certainly not in that situation, perhaps just as eager. Is there any word from the Lord? And the response that kept coming back over and over again was this, Get back to the basics get back to the basics get back to the basics and then I had to puzzle what are the basics <laughs> that's a challenging question isn't it much uh, like the statement of Augustine who first put forth the motto and opinion liberty in faith unity in all things love and in the early 1800s when The Presbyterians especially began to desire to see unity among the Christians. And some of them came up with this motto in in opinion, liberty, in essentials, unity, and in all things love. And they thought that can bring division if we just get rid of all of our creeds and nominational names and come back to the essentials. But then division occurred because people disagreed on what were the essentials. And I faced that as, what are the basics? And as I continued to seek the answer from God over over in my mind came the scene in Matthew 22. Beginning with 21, 18 in Matthew, on through Matthew 25, describes Tuesday, two days after the triumphal entry, two, possibly two and a half days before Jesus was arrested. This is called the great day of questions because many questions were posed to Jesus and he answered them. The disciples asked him a lot of questions. His enemies asked him a lot of questions. And Jesus even asked others a lot of questions. The great day of questions. And one of the most important questions was posed by a lawyer. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, they were usually enemies of one another. But because Jesus was their common enemy, they came together and did their best to somehow embarrassed Jesus and finally they put forth a lawyer here's the passage in Matthew 22:34 and following but the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence they gathered themselves together and one of them a lawyer asked him a question testing him teacher which is the great commandment in the law he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment, and the second like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He was quoting Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Now the very devout Jews of that day, especially those that were part of the religious hierarchy, 
wore phylacteries. A phylactery was a little leather box on your forehead uh, strapped behind, and in that box there were scriptures, and the scriptures that they had in that box were these two, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. So they had already put that together. As a matter of fact, some time before, when Jesus was in his later Judean ministry, he came to Jerusalem one day, and there was a lawyer that asked him, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, because he was a lawyer, Jesus thought he surely knows the law. He says, what does the law say? How do you read it? This is in Luke chapter 10. And he said, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul. Here he added strength. And love thy name. Jesus said, you've answered rightly. And we'll talk about that a little more later. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, all thy heart, soul, and mind in this passage. <laughs> and the second is like unto it, love thy neighbors thyself. Let's meditate on this very basic truth today. Your God. God is God. <laughs> Simple, isn't it? <laughs> That came out so clearly in the studies we recently had in January and February in our Sunday night, or rather, no, that was last year, September and October. Usually I do that in January and February. That's your, all right, September and October as we studied Ex Leviticus number Deuteronomy. Time and time and time and time again, the Lord said, I'm God. Understand that. I expect you to obey me implicitly, to obey me explicitly. I am God, and I expect to be honored as God. God is God, first of all, because he created everything. Genesis 1.1, Bereshit bara Elohim. The word bara means created. It doesn't mean made. There's another Hebrew word for made, asa. But bara implies creating something out of nothing. And that's the way the Bible begins. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, he created, God did. That's how our Bible starts. He is the creator. Asa means made. And it's interesting, as you read through the Genesis account, after the Everything has been made by being created out of nothing. Then it starts saying, God made. Let us make man in our image. And God took of the earth that he had already created and made man. Today we look at the wonderful gifts of so-called creativity among us. Wasn't that a wonderful Sunday we had two weeks ago with all of the gorgeous art display that we had and the music? And we say artists create, but artists really make. <laughs> because you have that vision in your mind, you see something, you see beauty, but you don't create it out of nothing. You have brush and palette and watercolors and stone and wood and clay. We make. 
Ah, but what about music? Well, how do you make music? If you sing, your vocal cords do it. <laughs> if you play a clarinet, a piece of wood does it. <laughs> we make. True creativity is God, who created out of nothing bara, and later began to make asa. Throughout the scriptures, that's emphasized, isn't it? The, good, uh, the Ten Commandments, in six days the Lord made heavens and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Psalm 146, it made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. In Acts chapter 4, when the apostles had been released really in a surprising way from prison, they came to their own people and the people rejoicing lifted their voices with one accord and said, Lord, it is thou who didst make heaven and earth and sea and all that is within them. Acts 14, when Paul and Barnabas were preaching in Lystra and people want to worship them as God. And they said, men, why are you doing these things? We're men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is. And on and on you see that time and time again in Scripture. In my opinion, if there's anything the American church needs today, it is a new revelation of God as God. I've often said, and you've heard me say it before, if just one time in my life God would let me have a vision that Isaiah had as recorded in Isaiah 6. I was in the temple and I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and there were these creatures flying about, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And I fell on my face and cried out, woe is me, I am undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips and of a people of unclean lips. I wish God someday would give me such a vision as that I would never sin again should I ever be granted such a vision. God is God. The oldest written creed that we have in Christianity is the one we call the Apostles' Creed, it begins in this way. I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, and his Son, his only Son, our Lord. I don't agree with that because it excludes Jesus from the creative process. <laughs> Not just God the Father. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things that came into being came into being, and the Greek here is dia with the genitive, which means through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, the King James and others use the word made, but it's not made. The Greek word for made is to make something, it's poieo, but the word is genomai, which means to become. See, it fits that creation, doesn't it? They, it came into existence through him. So God the Father and God the Son, and even in the account in Genesis, the Holy Spirit is involved because the Spirit of God moved upon 
the deep. So I don't agree with the two opening lines of the Apostles' Creed because it separates Jesus from the act of creation. Anyone here who is competent to explain that, I think you're a liar. <laughs> no one can explain the Trinity and how all of this blends together and how it all functions. But the Godhead, which is what the word Jehovah really refers to, all are involved in this marvelous creation. Thank God that he is God, but we need to remember that. Psalm 103, one of the most beautiful psalms. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. God is God. We need to remember that. It needs to be emphasized. I think the church needs to have a renewal of that revelation. And then love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. What does it mean to love God? As we pointed out in many sermons and teachings before, we'll do so again. There, there are four Greek words that in English we render as love. Three of those refer to an emotion. Storge, the emotion of a family. Phile, which is friendship or affection. And eros, which is erotic uh, emotion, romantic emotion. But the other word is agape, and there is no emotion in agape. Agape is a volitional word. It means choice. We could say obey. It's almost a synonym for that. Obey the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind because that's really the implication of that word. Agape, obey, choose to obey God. It speaks of obedience. When we were in our studies in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, <laughs> time and again, remember, we saw those times when God said, you have not honored me as God because in some detail they were not obeying him. Some years ago when I was involved in studies, which I was involved for about five years of under different psychiatrists and counseling studies, one of the things that I frequently heard was this. Our emotions are who we are. I don't agree. <laughs> the choices I make define who I am. And sometimes my choices go against my feelings and my emotions because God has spoken. And I choose to do that regardless of what my feelings or my emotions or even what my tendencies might be. Emotions are not who I am. My choices are who I am. And to me, that's a very, very important point. Jesus said, if you love me, agape, <laughs> you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15, 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is 
who agapes me loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John 15:10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I do not have the courage of the hubris to want to change one of God's commands, alter it, or substitute something in its place. Sometimes that means loss of friends. Sometimes it means loss of a relationship with a family member. It may even mean loss of a job. And in some situations, as was noted in Persecuted Church Sunday, it may mean loss of life. Matthew 10, 34, Jesus spoke that following him may cause us to be alienated from some of those who are closest to us. Matthew 10, 37 and following, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Jesus said, this is the first and foremost commandment. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, and all thy mind. And as we say, the lawyer in Luke's 10 added strength (laughs) and the second likened to it. Now remember the second commandment is not the first commandment. Today we live in a world that wants to define Christianity by moral behavior. How kind are you? How altruistic are we? And that defines Christianity. But no, Christianity, first of all, is a belief system. Believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Believing that there is a God who is God. And we worship Him and we adore Him. And out of that flows our moral behavior, our kindness, our altruism we must remember the difference between the first commandment and the second even though the second is of equal authority because it is like unto it as Jesus said you know the behavior the manifestation of our Christianity is we are seeking to model Jesus in all we do now remember that earlier episode in, in Luke 10 when the lawyer came and said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at me. Here was a man who had been circumcised like the rich young ruler. Jesus gave him the command. He said, all I've done from my youth up. So this man, when he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what does the law say? How do you read it? And the man gave the answer, which was the appropriate answer. Jesus said, you've answered correctly. And then you remember the lawyer, well... Who's my neighbor? (laughs) Obviously, one of my fellow Jewish Sadducees or Pharisees, depending on which group that he belonged to. And as Jesus often did, he didn't give a straight answer. He told a story. (laughs) 
There was a man who was going down the road. He's beset by robbers. They beat him and left him. And along came a priest. He had to hurry on to the temple to do his duties. Along came a Levite. He was busy. He rushed by, ignored the man. And then came one of the most hated people the Jews had in that day, <laughs> a Samaritan. To the Jews, the Samaritans were dogs. But along came a Samaritan. He stopped, he ministered to the man, he bound up his wounds, he took him to him in and said, care of him, here's some money. If, he, if it costs more on my way back, I'll pay the difference. And then Jesus said to the lawyer, who was the neighbor? <laughs> that was a tough one for the lawyer to answer because Samaritans in his eyes were dogs. But the neighbor is the man who agaped. <laughs> he chose and acted out love. That is the second commandment. Sermon on the Mount gave us the golden rule, therefore, however you want people to treat you, so treat them. This is the law and the prophets. Now, we paraphrase that by saying, do unto others, you'd have them do unto you. Some of the other religions have a negative way. Don't do anything to anybody you don't want them to do to you. But Jesus presented it in a positive way. However you want people to treat you, treat them for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus Christ came into the world for more than one reason. He came, of course, to go to the cross and redeem us from our sins. Scripture also tells us he came to reveal the Father to us. Here you have somebody you can really see and understand the heart of the Father. He's living it out. But there's another reason he came, and that was so he could emphasize with what our life was like and is like. Remember Hebrews says, we do not have a great high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted or tested like as we are yet without sin. And so as we sang that song this morning, <laughs> you know, help us on the way, and so many of those songs, when we come to God through our intercessor, Jesus Christ, through our high priest, and you say, God, my child is sick. God, I'm struggling over this or that or the other. Here's a temptation I'm battling. Jesus is not some detached mechanic working on a car without feeling. But he's been here. He empathizes. He understands. And he goes to the Father in our behalf. What a blessing to know. And we're to do the same thing. When we see someone suffering... Someone who is enslaved by some obsessive sin. 
let's stop and do our best to put ourselves in that person's place. That person's place. Are we to do anything? Are we to pray? Are we to lend a helping hand? Sometimes a helping hand's a mistake. All you're doing is enabling. God has to guide us in these matters. But put ourselves in that person's place. When a crime is committed, shall we say a man rapes a woman? We pray for that woman that God would heal her, but we also need to pray for the perpetrator. That man is enslaved by a demon or enslaved by something that is driving him. He needs deliverance. We need to pray for the perpetrator as much as the victim. Let's put ourselves in that person's place. You know, sometimes as we live with the Lord, and this is one of the most mature churches, I think, anywhere in the world. But we get caught up in esoteric discussions of theology and psychology and philosophy, host of other topics, exercising our logic and our theories. Some years ago, I heard a football coach who had a very successful football team interviewed, and they asked him, why does your team year after year after year do so well? And he said, it is because we emphasize the basics, <laughs> tackling and blocking. And every year, even the most experienced player, we go over that over and over and over again. Perhaps we as Christians need to think about the basics sometimes when our thoughts are flying all over the place. Get back to the basics. May God be praised.